You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. Axe Church Northwest is located in Vancouver, Washington. We meet each Sunday with two services, one at 9 a.m. and one at 11 a.m. If this is your first time listening, welcome. We hope you enjoy. Want to know more about us? You can check us out online at www.axecamus.org. Okay, here's the sermon. We hope God blesses you through it. As a famous and thoughtful philosopher, Peggy Hill, from the show King of the Hill, once said, I am not a professional psychologist, but I am an amateur psychologist. Many of us are amateur psychologists. We think we have this ability to know the intentions of the hearts of other people. Uh, Someone steps on our foot, let's say, and we assume that they did that on purpose to hurt us because they're big jerks. Or you send someone a text message and you didn't immediately get a text back or five minutes later get a text back and you're like, oh, this person's the worst. They should be sitting there waiting to answer my text messages, right? They're probably just a big jerk. We assume these things about them. I I actually advise people when they send text messages or when they send emails that they need to be very, very careful what they put in that email or the words that they use because it will often be read in the worst possible way that it could be read, right? If there's any possible way to take it negatively, people tend to take it negatively, you know, texting, hey, buddy, you want to meet up for some Mexican food? Salsa dancing girl, sombrero emoji, yummy emoji, whatever people send, I don't know, all this stuff, but, and the person's like, I can't believe he sent me that text. I'm like, why? Why? Like five years ago, one time, I sort of maybe mentioned a little bit that I didn't like Mexican food. So he's just trolling me, and he hates me, and that's why he's saying, let's go to Mexican food. I know that sounds crazy, but there was one, not exactly this one, but there was another one. I've changed it to protect the innocent. That was exactly like this. Somebody was saying this to me. I'm like, I think the guy just wants to go to Mexican food with you. I think he's actually being nice. But we have this tendency to assume negative things about people, which assume that everybody else is a turdy head. And I apologize for the language. But my mom's not here this week, and so I can get a little saltier than, than normally. There you go. All right. When we feel ignored or rejected, when we feel disrespected, we tend to assume that people intended to hurt us, intended to disrespect us, intended to reject us. And when we hear negative things about other people, we tend to believe the worst about them. You hear something in the news about somebody or somebody tells you about something that's going on with some friend of yours or whatever. We tend to assume the worst possible thing. They intended to do whatever this was because they're big jerks and they're whatever. And that's just the nature of the way that we, that we deal with that kind of thing. The fact is we judge the hearts of other people. Many of us do it all the time. But this is what the Bible says about judging the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked, who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. So who can know it? One person. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God is very clear about something. We do not know what is in the hearts of other people. We do not know what is in the minds of other people. God does know. God knows every heart and every mind. But we do not. So why 
are we so busy so often judging the hearts of other people? I think it's probably because it makes us feel better about ourselves. I think that's why we do it. The world tends to play what's called a zero-sum game. Some of you know what a zero-sum game is. It's pretty simple. Like, let's take football, for example. There's two teams playing. One of them's going to win, and the other's going to lose, right? If this one wins, then this one lost. If this one wins, then this one lost. It's a zero-sum. They can't both win, no matter how much parents of millennials want all the teams to win. <laughs> Does not work like that. That is not the fault of the millennials, by the way. That's on us for making things that way. It's a zero-sum. People play a zero-sum game. So people in the world treat each other like that about their value, right? I'm not handsome enough unless I'm more handsome than that guy. I'm not successful enough unless I'm more successful than that woman, right? It's a, it's a game. We stack up. How do we stack up? We use that kind of word, right? Which suggests that there's a hierarchy of values somehow. We're on some kind of a ladder, and it's a zero-sum ladder. If I'm on this rung, you can't be on this rung. You have to be on that rung. And so we tend to play this game. Go to any high school or junior high, and you'll see it probably at its very worst. But I'll tell you what, you can see it pretty bad in just about every office place. You can see it pretty bad in any worldly collection of people where there's this game. There's backbiting, right? There's talking about people, putting each other down, like, oh, did you hear about Johnson? He did such and such. Like, oh, he's a blah, 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 blah. That's just the way that people are. And we do it because if Johnson is here, then we see ourselves as here. And so we've got to push Johnson here so we can be here. Just the nature of how we do business sometimes. People judge others. They judge the hearts of other people. They think the worst of others. This is the way of the world. This is the world and its culture. And it's upside down. It's upside down. Judgment of the hearts of others is God's business. It's none ya. It's not your business. It's God's business. You don't judge hearts. God judges hearts. When we do judge hearts, we are acting like we think we can take God's place. We're acting like we can be in charge of things that we are not in charge of. And until some of you can start making trees grow or creating universes, you probably shouldn't start trying to take God's place in other places because you wouldn't be a very good God. I know I wouldn't. But we want to take his place. We want to judge the hearts of other people. And when we do that, we destroy people. We destroy people that are made in the image and likeness of God. When we try to be God, and judge the hearts and minds of other people. Now, occasionally we meet somebody who's not like this, who doesn't play the world's game on this. I have a, one of my grandmas, my, both of my grandmas are wonderful. One of my grandmas is, is got a really right side up view on this. My, my grandma, my mom's mom. And she just wants to believe the best about everybody. So she'll hear, you know, we'll hear news that some person did some horrible thing. And my grandma's reaction will be something like, oh, that's too bad. He probably didn't mean to do it, right? You know, he's had a really difficult life. We should really be praying for him and his family. And I'm just like, what? Everybody else is thinking, this jerk, I can't believe he did this thing. And grandma's like, no, I'm going to believe the best. 
about this person. I'm not going to judge his intentions and his hearts, but that's not the normal reaction that most people have when they get that kind of news. Because most people, not the least me, myself, have been very influenced by the upside-down culture of the world on this issue. Now, we have been in a series called Right Side Up. Right Side Up. We've been studying Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching us the ways of the kingdom of God, the kingdom life. And he is showing us that the world is upside down and the truth of God is right side up. So let's get into our study today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. Right at the beginning, we finished Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6. We're into Matthew chapter 7, so we've got one chapter left in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm guessing four or five years we should be should get through it. So let's, let's go ahead and read it real quick. It says this, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. All right. Those are our five verses for today, and they're pretty power-packed. Last week, if you were here, and I hope you were, we went through the importance of context in understanding what Jesus is teaching in the Bible in general, and frankly, anything. Whether it's a movie you're watching, a book you're reading, a conversation you're having, you always have to have context at play to, to possibly understand what's intended to be said. And so we need to understand our Lord's teaching by understanding it in the larger context of this whole section of teaching, of the whole book of Matthew, of the Gospels, and of the Scripture, and everything that God has revealed to us in Scripture and nature. We have to have all that to understand what's being said. And last week we studied... How Jesus uses the word therefore. That he uses the word therefore to show a conclusion to an argument that he's been making. He's been trying to tell us something true. And so making that argument, at the end of that argument, it says therefore, and then he gives us the conclusion, the truth. So we talked about how that's happening in these teachings of Christ. So that's the way that he's teaching us. And so we have to know why the word therefore, what it's there for, right? All that kind of stuff. And in this section of chapter 7, we cannot understand what's being said without understanding where the argument is going. Where is he going with this? Which means that we need to find the next therefore in the passage. Because if we can find the next therefore, then we can see what the conclusion is, and we can see how what we're reading right now fits in with that conclusion. Now, last October... We were in chapter 5 of Matthew. So I actually am moving through it relatively quickly. But we were in chapter 5, and we went through a, through a section. We started the section in chapter 5, and, and at the time, we learned that that section started right here and actually didn't end until about the middle of chapter 7, which is where we are right now. We're actually, we're actually honing in on getting to the end of this section that started all the way back in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, Jesus says something about him being the one to fulfill the law and the prophets. It's right here. Chapter 5, verse 17. It'll be on the screen here. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then at the end of that section that starts there, 
is a few verses after what we read today. It's in, in Matthew 7, 12, and it says this. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And so everything in that section is two things. Jesus saying, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And then he's telling us how to fulfill the law and the prophets because we are his body. So we are to continue to do the work of Jesus Christ in fulfilling the law and the prophets. And he tells us in this, this 12th verse, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So that whole section is all in that vein, okay, in that, in that realm of thought. And what we're reading today, these five verses, are actually the beginning of that last argument that ends with this therefore. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, okay? So this, we've had a bunch of arguments within arguments within arguments. This last one goes to the last part that connects all the way back to this first part. See, God is really intelligent, really intelligent. Nobody that I know of weaves together teaching and arguments like Scripture. I don't know of any place, anywhere, and I've done a lot of reading, okay? I, I went to college and everything. Did a lot of reading, and I can tell you nobody weaves an argument like Jesus Christ or even the Apostle Paul or Peter or any of them. I mean, the way, the way that these guys do it is incredible. But what we started today ends with that therefore. So the conclusion to the argument that Jesus is starting today is therefore whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. Now that you know that, that that's the conclusion, let's read the passage again and see if we can see it in light of the conclusion that he's running towards. Okay? This is what it says. Judge not that you be not judged. Right there. You see it? You don't do something unless you want it to happen to you. Okay? For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, others, but not to consider the plank in your own eye, you? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's all... These are all premises into the conclusion of what people call the golden rule, right? The therefore that's going to hit us right here. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. You want to judge, you're going to be judged. You want to use judgment against somebody else, it's going to come back to you. Do to others what you would have them do. So, we see that judging others is not just wrong. There's actually a consequence, that when you judge others, it will mean that judgment will come back to you. Do to others what you want them to do to you. Now, the question for us this morning is what does it mean to judge and what does it not mean? What does it mean to judge and what does it not mean? The world has championed this passage. You will hear many, many people say to you, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. Now, if you do what I would do and say to them, oh, you like the sayings of Jesus? Let's see if you want to do all of them, right? You're rarely going to get back from them anything other than just another judge not, right? It's kind of a trump card. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> it's 
stop. Lord, help me. Okay. <laughs> it's something that people use to try to tell you that no one is allowed to judge anything about anyone at any time. That's the way that the world uses it, which means they want to take it out of context. They want to yank it out of the scripture and use it as a sword against people or a shield for themselves, but not understand what it actually means, what it was intended to mean. Again, context is the key to understanding. Context, context, context. There are a lot of verses in a book as big as the Bible. I don't know if you guys know, but this is a big book. The words aren't that big. There's a lot of them. It's thick. That's why it takes us a year to go through the reading, which I hope you guys are doing. There's a lot of verses. And if you want to take them out of context, you can get a lot of silly stuff. For instance, here's a couple. Job 19:17. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body. This is kind of my personal story. Or this is also a personal story. Proverbs 32. Surely I am more stupid than any man and do not have the understanding of a man. Now, if you take these out of context, they're not exactly the type of thing you'd want to put on a t-shirt or coffee mug, right? <laughs> Although I do think we got an Axe coffee mug coming with these on it. Um, yeah, I think that's the way to go. Here's the thing. You have to have context. And the word judge has more than one meaning in English and in the language the New Testament was written in, which is Greek. Both in English and Greek, it has more than one meaning. Okay, I can talk about a judge in a courtroom. The guy with the black dress, little hammer, that guy. Okay, I can talk about using good judgment to pick your next job or to pick a stock or to pick a spouse, right? That's using good judgment. Some of you better judgment than others, I'd say. Um, most of the men in here had really good judgment. The women with their spouses, not as good a judgment from what I can tell, but... Or you can judge whether, an, uh, whether something's actually evil or good, right? You can make a judgment about something being evil or good. Or you can judge guilt or innocence, like a jury might do. Or you can judge to condemn. Judgment is, can be used as condemnation. All of these are possibilities. All of them are possibilities because the word has those meanings. Some people in the world want to use judge not lest you be judged as essentially synonymous or the same as you do you. I'm okay, you're okay, right? Nobody is allowed to judge anybody for anything. That's what they're trying to say. Now, that is a possible interpretation. It's possible because the word judge can be used that way. The word judge can be used that way. But we need to see if it will hold up in context by looking at the context of the passage, of the whole teaching, of the book, of the gospels, and of everything that's been revealed to us in scripture, okay, and nature. And we got to see whether that holds up. If Jesus had meant that you were commanded not to use any kind of judgment at all, or at least any kind of judgment at all with people, then that should bear itself out in the text, that should bear itself out in his teachings and the teachings of those who he taught, right, in the rest of the Bible. Now, the word in Greek that's used for judge here is the word krino. That's how I say it. Go ahead and say it. Krino. Yes, that's wonderful. Can you roll your R's? It's amazing. It's just fun, okay? That's the word for judge. Now, here's the problem with taking that word and saying that what Jesus meant by it was that you can never judge anyone for anything at any time. Here's the problem. He uses the word more than once in his teachings. One of the times he uses it in John 7, 24, and this is what he says. Do not judge, Carino, 
according to appearance, but judged Carino with righteous judgment. He actually tells us that we are to judge people with righteous judgment. So we've got a problem here. At one point, Jesus is telling us not to judge, and at the other point, he's telling us to judge. So we're, we're jacked up unless he's using it in context in different ways, like we would use the word, which he is, because he's really smart, like I said. It's not a discrepancy in the scripture. The word has more than one meaning. This means this. There is a kind of judgment we are supposed to be doing and a kind of judgment we are not supposed to be doing. I'd say it's pretty important that we know which is which. Pretty important. In the context of this passage, just 10 verses later in chapter 7 of Matthew, we see Jesus talking about uh, false prophets, right? People who come to you, wolves and sheep's clothes and that type of thing. He says, you will know them by their fruits. Now, fruits are actions, right? What they do and and what the consequences of those, those actions are. How are we to do anything about that scripture unless we are judging the fruits that we see to know whether someone is a false prophet or not? We have to be able to judge the fruits. It's the way it works. It's the way it works. So he cannot be saying, do not judge anyone about anything ever. It's impossible. He cannot be saying that. Some judgment is necessary. Some judgment is necessary. We are called to judge righteously the behavior of others. We are not called to judge the hearts of others. We are not called to condemn others. Okay? We are not the judges of motives and minds or the judges for condemnation for two reasons. Okay? I'm going to give you these two reasons why. Here's reason number one. We do not have the ability... We don't have the capacity. We're not able to judge minds because we're not able to see into hearts and minds, right? If you think you are seeing into hearts and minds, you're wrong. God has reserved that to himself. We read that earlier from Jeremiah. He is the judge of the heart. He is the judge of the mind. We don't see into the hearts of others. Whether we would say they're doing something good or whether we would say their motives are bad, doesn't matter. You don't know. Only God knows, as we've already studied. We saw in chapter 5 of Matthew, as we were studying, that murder and adultery are in the heart. If you read the rest of Scripture, you'll see that all kinds of sins are are said to be from the heart, in the heart. That means God knows them. That means if you, as he says, lust after a woman, you are committing adultery with her in your heart. Who knows about that? Not me, not you. I could never see it. I don't know what's going on in your heart. Who sees it? God sees it. We can see if you go out and actually commit adultery and we catch you in the physical act. We cannot see whether or not your heart has evil desires in it. That's something that only God can see and only God can judge. Only God can judge that. Second, number two, we have not been given jurisdiction to condemn people. We just haven't been given that jurisdiction. This is a big one. God is the judge. God is the one who will separate those who are his from those who are not his and who are in persistent rebellion to him. He will make that judgment. He will make that condemnation. It is not for us to make. You are not authorized. You ever bought something online and you have something come back and says, this card is not authorized? Happens to me every time I steal Hunter's card. Every time. 
In that case, it means I'm not getting my Washington Huskies Snuggie on Amazon that I was ordering. But in the case that I'm talking about here, I'm saying you don't have authorization to condemn. You are not authorized. Jesus Christ has all authority and all judgment. It's his. You cannot steal it from him. You cannot act as him. It is only his. You do not have the authority. Now, when I was a kid, and some other kid would tell me something, he'd tell me what to do. My response was usually this. You're not the boss of me. Right? You probably heard that. Hopefully not from your own kids. But I would say, you're not the boss of me. And what I meant was that this kid doesn't have jurisdiction over me. Now, I couldn't even pronounce the word jurisdiction, much less that I know what it means at that time. But I do know what it means now. Right? I, jurisdiction is, is clear when someone has authority over you. Now, dad had jurisdiction. He had jurisdiction, and he had the paddle to prove it. Right? And many times he exercised his jurisdiction on my hind end. Many a time. Okay? He could tell me what to do, and if I did not do it, there were consequences because dad had jurisdiction. Only Jesus Christ has authority to condemn. Only he has jurisdiction. If you are out there condemning people, or you are out there judging the hearts and minds of other people, you are acting outside of your jurisdiction. And in that case, they could say, you're not the boss of me. There, is, there are those people in those moments where that would be appropriate. What does jurisdiction mean? It's two Latin words, okay? Juris, meaning law, and diction, meaning speak, to speak, or speech. It means the authority to speak the law. That's what jurisdiction means. If you're ever wondering, now you know. It means that you have the authority to speak the law. Each one of us, every person in this room, lives in a number of overlapping jurisdictions, okay? You and your spouse, you have jurisdiction over your marriage. You guys get to hold each other accountable to things that you have vowed to God that you will do for one another. You get to hold accountable to the things, the purpose and the calling of your marriage, things like that. You have jurisdiction in that sphere, okay? The uh, boss at work has jurisdiction over your work. You either do what the boss says in, in her jurisdiction, or you don't have a job, right? Because the boss has jurisdiction. The state and federal governments have jurisdiction over certain things we do, okay? You can't go out and steal stuff, you know, rob the store or whatever, or the state is going to exercise its jurisdiction and speak the law and enforce it. You're going to end up in jail. The state has certain jurisdiction, Jesus in this passage is clearly defining the limits of our jurisdiction. He's defining the limits of our jurisdiction. You are not to judge the heart or to condemn people. You are not to judge the heart or to condemn people. You cannot judge what's in someone's heart or mind. You cannot say whether someone belongs to God or not. These things are outside of your jurisdiction. And you don't want people doing that to you. So you ought not to do it to them. That's the conclusion we're going to get to. Now, let me be clear about something. There are some things that Scripture is very clear about. Couldn't be more clear about. If a person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, if they believe that, if they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, meaning Jesus has jurisdiction over them and they submit to him and obey him, if they do that 
and they believe in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, they will be saved. If they do not do that, they will not be saved. Scripture's clear. No question. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only one who's provided reconciliation and redemption from our sin. That's it. There is no one else. There is no two ways about it. However, you are not able to see whether someone has made Jesus Lord in their heart or believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead. You are not able, you don't have the ability, and you don't have the authority or jurisdiction to start making those judgments about who's in and who's out. That's not your thing to judge. Okay, you can judge fruits, you can do all kinds of stuff, but you can't know ultimately whether somebody is God's or not. Those are his children, and he has jurisdiction over them. That's the way that that works. You are, however, given some authority. You do have some authority. Let's look at the Great Commission, the one that we got on the wall out there. It says this. And Jesus came to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Who's got jurisdiction over everything? Jesus. Jesus has ultimate jurisdiction over everything, everyone, every being, every creature, every plant, every, all the soil, all the waters, everything. It's his. Okay? Then he says, go therefore. Okay. The therefore is referring to, I have all the authority. Then I'm saying, go because I have all the authority. So what he's doing in that word go is he is stamping you with a certain amount of authority and jurisdiction as his follower. For the Christ follower, you are granted some of Jesus's jurisdiction. Just like a judge in a lower court is granted that jurisdiction by a higher court. Okay? Just like the person who you have go out and and get something for you, you are granting them the authority that you would have had to go get that thing to them. Jesus is doing the same thing. It's very simple. He's saying, I have all the jurisdiction. Now, because I have all the jurisdiction, I'm delegating to you a certain amount of jurisdiction. Now, me, myself, I'm an amazing delegator. I will delegate everything that I can delegate if possible. That's my kids. I will delegate, okay? Okay. Jesus is a good delegator too, much better than me about what he does. Uh, But he is saying to every single person who is a Christ follower, who is his body, that as his body, you have certain authority. You have certain jurisdiction. To what? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, What does that mean? What is our jurisdiction in the church? Here's what it is. We have jurisdiction and authority to make disciples for Jesus. We have that jurisdiction. We have jurisdiction to baptize people into life in Christ and his body, the church. And we have jurisdiction to teach them all that he has commanded. Now, there's a lot of things that flow from those jurisdictions. But those are unquestionably authorities and jurisdictions that are given to the Christ follower. What this includes, that not everybody loves, is judging the actions of those who name themselves brothers and sisters in Christ. Judging with righteous judgment and with love the actions of those who name themselves brothers and sisters in Christ. Now let me back up for a second and expand a little bit 
on the, on the teaching on jurisdiction so we understand a little bit better because there's so much stuff in Scripture that is working within the context and the idea of jurisdiction. And so as you read Scripture for yourself, you want to be able to identify it when there's jurisdiction being talked about, okay? So you have an ever-growing number of jurisdictions. The first one you have is yourself. It's yourself. You have the authority to submit yourself to the jurisdiction of God, to submit yourself to the jurisdiction and the commands of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You must do this, or all your other jurisdictions are going to be a mess. If you don't have that first jurisdiction taken care of, that God has given you a mind, body, soul, spirit, and you have the ability to sow to the spirit, to submit yourself to God, and to let him be in control and in charge. That's your first duty and your first jurisdiction. Make sure you are following all the commands of Jesus. This is what goes to the whole, the, the whole plank in the eye and the, and the sliver or the, or the speck. If I do not have myself submitted to Christ, I don't have that first jurisdictional sphere fixed the right way, and then I go out and try to tell you how you're messing up, I got a problem. I'm sitting here trying to do microsurgery on a speck in your eye while I have got a two-by-four coming out the side of my head. Okay, That's what he's talking about. You got a plank coming out of your eye, banging things around here. Hey, let me, let me get in your eye and do that surgery. If, if the doctor walked in, you're about to have surgery, eye surgery, right? Which is just, I've never had that. That sounds horrible. Like, take your eyes and put them up on the side. Yeah. But let's say that's, that's you, and the doctor comes in, he's back, he's getting his things on his back, so he turns around, whoop, and there's a big plank in his eye. You going to let him go messing around in your eye with this big plank coming out? No. People with planks in their eye are not good surgeons. But you'll notice that the passage does not say, don't remove the speck from your brother's eye. It says, first get rid of the plank, then go remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's saying, get your jurisdiction right, or you're going to end up being a hypocrite. Get yourself right with the Lord that you might be able to operate in all the other jurisdictional duties and obligations and authorities that you have in your life. So that's number one. Got to remove that plank. Got to get yourself submitted to God. Does that mean that you never sin? No. Does that mean that you're perfect, completely perfect in every way all the time? No. What it means is that you're continually in the process of submitting yourself to the authority of God. That's what it means. Now, we've got to get jurisdiction in the proper order. The next jurisdiction in your life is your family. It's the next place where you have a jurisdiction. There is a biblical guide. There's a biblical command for what jurisdiction looks like within a family. I don't have time to teach on all that today. I'm going to tell you what the jurisdictions are, but we'd have a whole, whole other series on every one of these. There are jurisdictional um, responsibilities and duties and authorities of the husband. There are jurisdictional responsibilities and duties and authorities of the wife. There are jurisdictional responsibilities and duties and authorities of the children. And there are jurisdictional responsibilities and duties of any other people that are living in your family home. All of those things, Scripture speaks to how we ought to live and how we ought to exercise the authority and jurisdiction granted to us by him in those contexts. 
So it's you to God, then it's your family. The next one and the last one I'm going to talk about today, although there are many others, there's, there's jurisdiction at work, there's jurisdiction at the PTA meeting, there's jurisdiction in all kinds of different places, but I'm going to go to number three. We're just hitting the top three. You and God, your family to God, and then the church. That's your next jurisdiction, the church. Within the church, there are a number of different jurisdictional things going on. The first one is this. God has appointed and set aside the elders of the church to have jurisdiction and spiritual authority and responsibility over the church. Some people don't like that. In fact, most elders I know don't like it because it's hard. It's hard. It's difficult. It is an incredible responsibility and act of service to be responsible for the spiritual lives of other people. It's difficult. But the Bible is God's word, and it is clearly set up that way in Scripture. And I tend to get myself in trouble when I go against Scripture. That's just my experience. And so that's the way he's done it. It is not an act. It is not a, an office that you want to aspire to. It is not something that puts you above other people. In fact, it is in the likeness of what Christ has taught us. It is an act of service. It is, a, it is putting yourself not above others, but below others and serving them. That's the role of an elder. But elders do have certain jurisdictional authority within the church that they are responsible to exercise lovingly and in a godly and righteous way. Okay? There are a number of other jurisdictions. Every single person in Christ's body has jurisdiction in certain areas, different areas for different people. Some of you might lead a ministry. Some of you might teach next kids. Some of you might be the people who built these things back here that are going to look a lot better next week than they do this week. Some of you might be people that do all, you're in your life group, right? You have certain jurisdictional authority and so on. Within that, within that more intimate group that God's called you to, to help hold people accountable and to encourage and to do these kinds of things. Every one of you has a jurisdiction, if you're a Christ follower, in his body. There are many roles that require you to exercise judgment and jurisdiction. The most important role, though, of every single person in Jesus Christ's church is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and all those made in the image and likeness of God. That is your most important role. That is the one that defines and shapes everything else that you do. And part of that love, real love, involves exercising a jurisdiction that many people would like to get out of. A jurisdiction that many people would like to use Matthew 7, 1 to avoid. That's the jurisdiction and responsibility of judging your brothers and sisters who name themselves brothers and sisters in Christ who are in unrepentant sin. That is in your jurisdiction, in your authority, and an obligation. Usually we're talking about a lifestyle sin, okay? Many times in Scripture it'll be something like a sexual sin, a lifestyle where you're having sexual relationships outside of a marriage between one man and one woman for life. And you're just living that way, right? That's one way. Another way might be honesty sins, like you steal from work all the time, okay? Or you, you cheat on your taxes all the time, or you gossip all the time. Sometimes it's a persistent addiction, like drunkenness or drug use. Sometimes it's overeating, or laziness. All of these things can become lifestyle sins when we're unrepentant about them. 
and we're not seeking the, the help of the Lord to repent, to forgive, and to help us transform from them. When we just decide to do them, and they become part of our lifestyle, they become unrepentant. When we're not broken over them, when we're not confessing, repenting, and turning away from them. In those situations, we are called to judge a brother or a sister who is in unrepentant sin. We're to go to them in love, in humility, and call them to repentance. Exhort them, encourage them to repentance. If they won't listen to you, you're to take one or two other people so that two or three witnesses are there. As again, in humble love, you go to that person and encourage and exhort them and call them to repentance and transformation. If they still won't listen, you got to take it to the church. And then the elders of the church have to remove that person from fellowship. It's a tough step. It's a tough thing. Not an easy thing to do. Not an easy thing to preach about, frankly. We have everything about how that works. Christ talks about it in Matthew 18. So if you want to look into Matthew 18, you can see what that looks like. We also have this from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 12. Okay, he's dealing with this guy. This guy has been sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. He's been having sexual relations with his stepmother. And the church has just been kind of ignoring it. They're like, okay, that's going on, but I don't want to say anything. Do you want to say anything? I don't want to say anything. Judge not, right? And so no one said anything. So this is what Paul says. I wrote to you in my epistle, that's a letter, epistle, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to, be, to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Paul is teaching a very clear jurisdictional distinction. Okay? The limits of our jurisdiction as a church. We are not to judge those outside the church. Okay? And there's reasons for that. Okay? First of all, their sin is a symptom of a problem. The problem is they're not in Christ. That's the first part of your authority, to go and make disciples, that the Holy Spirit might draw them and transform them. So we are not to go judging people outside the church. You're not supposed to go to your neighbor's house, look in the window, oh, that's what you're watching on Netflix? Judge, judge, judge. Who else is sinning around here? Who's sinning, right, and judging? That is not your job. It is not your jurisdiction. Paul's clear. If you were to do that, if you had to separate yourself from everybody who was in persistent, unrepentant sin that was outside of the church in the world, as he says... You would literally have to go to some island somewhere or take a rocket ship to Mars or I guess wrap yourself in bubble wrap and not ever talk to anybody or be around anybody because the world is full of unrepentant sinners. But the church ought not to be. The church ought not to be. And so he's saying, well, we don't judge those outside the church. You better believe we judge those inside the church who are in unrepentant sin. He's, he's upset with these people in Corinth. Because they have not exercised the judgment that shows love that a brother and sister in Christ should have for one another. Inside the church, we are to judge the unrepentant sinner and remove them from communion with the church until they repent. Now, when they repent, oh, they're back. 
open arms, full grace. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. Every one of us has desperately needed the grace of Jesus Christ. And they get it. When they repent and they come back home, they're home. We forget it. We don't think about it anymore. We bring them back in and we love them. Whether that's one person going to them and they repent, whether that's two or three witnesses going to them and repent, or whether they've been removed from the church and they come back and repent, they are brought back in with open and loving arms. Because that's who we are, full of grace. But they are not, we are not to allow it to go on without judgment. We cannot ignore our responsibilities in our jurisdiction. Let me tell you why. When a father does not exercise the jurisdiction that he has within his family, he's not there. He doesn't, he doesn't exercise the jurisdiction, the obligations, the responsibilities of being a father. His children suffer. It's called a broken home for a reason. It's broken because someone is not fulfilling their jurisdictional role. And it will have an effect. Now, can Christ heal and restore anything, a broken home or not? Of course he can. But that doesn't mean it's not broken. That does not mean it's not broken. If your boss at work was to not fulfill her jurisdiction, okay? So you're working, and she's on the do not judge train, the you do you train, and you don't show up for work. She goes, hey, who am I to judge? You do you. You go to the cash register, you take all the money out, you stick it in your pocket. And she goes, who am I to judge? You do you. How long is that business going to be around? Not long. It's broken. It's going to fail. When people do not exercise the jurisdiction they are called to exercise, whatever that body is that they're supposed to exercise jurisdiction over, it fails. It breaks. It damages people. It harms people. It's not loving. It's not loving. 40% of children in this country, they tell us, are now being born outside of marriages. That means people are not exercising their responsibilities and jurisdictions properly. When the people of Christ's body, the church, do not take on their jurisdictional responsibilities, the church suffers and is broken. Period. That's how it works. The church must exercise its jurisdiction or it will not be effective. Let me tell you why. Because we cannot tell the world that we believe the scripture and ignore our responsibilities that come from the scripture. We can't do that. We cannot say we believe there's such a thing as right or wrong. That we believe that there's such a thing as following all of Jesus' commands and yet ourselves, we are not following them. And then we ignore those who are naming themselves brothers and sisters in Christ who are unrepentant, sin, destroying themselves. And we expect people to take us seriously. Even they... Even the unbeliever, even the person in the world calls dad, mom, son, uncle Steve, whoever, to account when he shows up for Christmas dinner drunk as a skunk and scares the kids. Even they will say, enough. And yet, we in the church sometimes, to a fault, will ignore sin that's going on right in front of us, that's destroying the person who's involved in it because we don't want to confront and we don't want to be judgy. There is a place to be judgy. You really do have places where you're supposed to judge. If there's a couple in the church that have been in the Lord, 
They're professing Christ as their Savior. They're saying they're a Christian, and they're living together and having sex with one another. They're not married. They're harming themselves. For you to sit by and ignore it sends a few very clear messages. One, it tells your 12-year-old daughter, who you're trying to tell not to live that way, that you don't really believe what you're saying because you're smiling and laughing and, and whatever with the person who is living that way. That's the first thing it says. The second thing it says is to the couple, I don't love you enough to help pull you back or stand in the gap for you or give you something to hold on to, to pull you out of sin that is harming you. And the third thing it says is to the world, we don't really believe what we say we believe. We would rather be comfortable. Comfortable, which is selfishness, than effective. We would rather be comfortable than truly love. That is not a message that the church should be sending to the world. It is not a message that we should be sending to our children, and it is not a message that we should be sending to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with unrepentant sin. It's a mess. It's a mess. People who don't exercise jurisdiction over their children are generally bad parents, and they generally have the kinds of children that you don't like to be around. If you've ever been around parents who don't exercise any jurisdiction over their children, you know what I'm talking about. Churches who do not exercise jurisdiction and judge the actions of their brothers and sisters who are living in unrepentant sin will be anemic and sick in anything they try to do to fulfill the Great Commission because they're broken. Know your jurisdiction and act in your jurisdiction. Not outside of it, but within it. Jesus is not saying you can't judge anything ever. You actually have some very clear places where you are to judge and some very clear places where you are not to. He's telling you to do unto others what you would have them do to, unto you. And I'll tell you this. You should want others to judge your sin if you fall into unrepentant sin. You should desire that for yourself. If I start to fall into an unrepentant, sinful life, and none of you come to me and say, David, I love you. We're, don't do this to yourself. Don't do this to your family. Don't, don't go this direction. If you, none of you say that, I hate to tell you, but you don't love me. And if you won't say it to each other, you don't love each other. You love your comfort. You love not being a judgmental person. You love being tolerant. G.K. Chesterton says, tolerance is the virtue of the man with no convictions. And he's not wrong. Absolute tolerance of everything, anything goes, says that you don't believe anything. It's selfishness. It's cowardice. And Christ's church is not full of cowards but of courageous men and women, strong in the power of the Holy Spirit, who march against the gates of hell. That's who we are. The church of Jesus Christ has been, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the restraining force against evil in the world since Pentecost. For 2,000 years, there has been one restraining force against evil in the world. One group of people who has marched against the gates of hell consistently and persistently, and it has been Christ's church. And if you don't believe me, just read history. You can't get away from it. And anyone who truly understands this, being honest, knows that that's the truth. If you want to be that, you've got to be strong, you've got to be courageous, and you've got to hold grace and judgment in tension. You cannot be 
anything goes, Mr. Grace, that's not grace, that's cowardice. And you cannot be, I'm judging everything and everybody's whatever and I'm right and everybody else is wrong. That's also cowardice. Those are easy. You know what's hard? I love you. I love you, but you have to change. I love you, but this isn't good for you. I love you, but I'm going to hold you accountable. And if you continue to call yourself a a, a Christian and a follower of Christ, and yet you continue to violate everything that Christ has told you to do persistently and without repentance, I will separate myself from you for your sake. Whether it's your kid, whether it's your best friend, whoever it is, they do not get higher than the jurisdiction of you and, and Jesus Christ. You must be willing to do what it takes to help people grow. And I will tell you my experience. Normally speaking, if it's truly a brother or sister in Christ, even if you get all the way to I've got to separate myself from relationship with you, the Holy Spirit then has the opportunity to create the circumstances in that person's life to bring them back. They will never come back if you enable them and make it easy. Why should they change their lifestyle if nothing has to change? If all of their brothers and sisters in Christ are clearly fine with it, whatever it is, why should they change? you got to have something come up against you. The father chastens the child he loves. Do you love your brothers and sisters? Then don't give me Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be judged, as if it meant that you're not allowed to judge anything. That's nonsense. Don't judge the world. It's not your job. God's already judged the world. Don't judge what's in the hearts and minds of others. It's not your job. It's not your jurisdiction. You can't do it. Don't condemn people. Not your job. Not your jurisdiction. Can't do it. Judging the actions and the fruits of your brothers and sisters in Christ to bring them to repentance. Absolutely your job and your obligation. And if you're not doing it, you are not being a good Christ follower. Now that'll change the way things go. And that'll change what people look to when they look to the church. Because what they should be looking to is a rock in the middle of a swirling sea that they're all being blown around in. And there's one thing to grab onto. There's one thing that is foundationally solid, and that is the church of Jesus Christ. And the only way we're going to look to them foundationally solid, a place that they can be rescued, is if we are operating the way that Christ has set up for us to operate. Or else they're just going to swim on by. Because we don't look very stable over here. But that's not what Christ's church should look like. That's not what God's children look like. And it can easily be who we become. Let's make sure that we are doing what God has called us to do. That we continue to cry out to an upside down and dying world. That there is good news that Jesus Christ has died and risen again and that people can be saved and experience the power of his resurrection and transformation in their lives. And the way that we do that is by being solid, us to God, us to our families, us to the church. And then people will listen. People will be drawn to that because it's something solid in the most murky world that I've ever heard of at any time in history. Everything is going, and there's only going to be one rock that's still standing, and that's Jesus Christ and his church. Recognize your responsibility in that. Thanks for listening to that Axe Church sermon. We hope God spoke to you through it. 
We would like to invite you to join us in person on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. for our Sunday service. If you enjoyed this sermon, have questions for us, or simply want to connect with Axe Church more, find us on Facebook under Axe Church Northwest. Send us an email or message or leave us a rating or recommendation. We appreciate all of you and hope to hear from you.